Hey, this is Carl Anderson. I'm the senior pastor of Sierra Bible Church, and this is our sermons podcast. I want to thank you for joining us today, and I hope that this message fills your soul with hope, helps you see the beauty of Jesus, and allows you to feel the love that God has for you. If you want more information about experiencing God's love for you personally, head over to sierrabible.org and contact one of our pastors. I love you, and I'm praying for you. Well, good morning, church. I did this uh, in the volunteer meeting, and I feel like I feel like it needs to happen again. Don't you think so, Carl? I think he does. It's a good Palm Sunday, right? So why don't you turn your neighbor and give him the nice high five? There you go. That's right. You see, once you have children as a father, you just immediately start spewing the dad jokes. It just happens naturally. Well, my name's Glenn. I'm one of the pastors here. If you have a copy of God's Word, would you turn with me to Luke chapter 19? Have you ever been um, out at the store doing minding your own business, and you realize that you are dressed suspiciously like the employees of said store? And then have you ever had somebody come up and tap you on the shoulder and say, hey, I need to know where this is? And what do you tell them? Yeah, I don't work here. And when you tell them that, inevitably, they're very angry at you. Like it's your fault that you didn't choose a career that would benefit them in Walmart or Target or wherever you happen to be, Best Buy. They get upset with you. There's an, uh, one of the things uh, that I used to enjoy doing was there was an internet like forum uh, that I would just different stories be posted. And, and the forum was called Lady, I Don't Work Here. And it was all these different stories of people encountering uh, others in places they're shopping, getting accused of working there. And then it just escalated from there. And the most colorful stories always ends up with a highly entitled lady coming in and sometimes being physically abusive, even grabbing them, saying, why aren't you listening? You're like, I don't work here. And they're like, give me your manager. And this, and it just escalates. Sometimes people get arrested. Sometimes they get banned from the store for life. And this mistaken identity kind of messes with them. I, I think we've experienced identity uh, mistakes, especially if you think, if for those of you who've had kids, you've seen your little kids do this, where uh, your toddler will be out in a crowd, kind of gets disconnected from you, and sees a person in a similar shape of you, right? And so they walk up and they grab that person's leg or they grab their hand. And that person's usually kind of like, what's going on? And they look down and the kid looks up. And what's the look on that child's face when he realizes this is a stranger? I don't know who it is. Sheer horror, right? Like this is the worst possible thing that could have ever happened to me and I'm going to die. Mistaking somebody's identity can get you in a little bit of hot water, right? We're going to look at uh, this morning a person's identity whom we cannot afford to mistake. And that person is Jesus. It is Palm Sunday, so we are uh, looking and celebrating uh, uh, just Jesus's entry into Jerusalem. And we're going to be looking today at Luke's account of the triumphal entry as Jesus comes into this city. Uh, just gives a little bit of background on what's happening before this point in the story. Jesus has been kind of on a road trip. That's destination is set in Jerusalem. He's been teaching along the way and doing miracles, and he's been inviting people to follow him into the kingdom of God. 
And now at this point in the story, we can see the destination is in sight. Also at the same time, as things have been moving steadily towards Jerusalem, there's been an increasing tension between Jesus and many of the religious leaders who deny his power, deny his teaching, believe Jesus is some kind of false prophet um, or charlatan. And so there's been this tension that's been happening. And we know, of course, that's going to ultimately culminate in Jesus's death in Jerusalem. So we're on the road where the destination's in sight. We're going to pick up now. They're approaching um, a couple of villages on the outskirts of Jerusalem. So let's pick up. We're going to start in verse 28 of Luke chapter 19. And when he had said these things, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of his disciples saying, go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied on which no one's ever yet sat. Just untie it and bring it here. And if anybody asks you, hey, why are you untying that? You shall just say this, uh, the Lord has need of it. All right, so give it a little uh, insight in what's happening in this text. Jesus is approaching these bedroom communities, Bethphage and Bethany. They're going in. He says to two of his disciples, hey, guys, you're going to go into town. You're going to find a donkey. It's a baby donkey. You're going to get that baby donkey. You're going to bring it back. And if anybody tries to stop you, just tell them the Lord needs it. I've always found this hilarious to me, this, this part of the story, because Jesus is essentially telling his disciples to go in and hotwire a car. That's kind of what he's telling them to do, right? He's saying, you're going to come walking into town. You're going to see this donkey. Just untie it and take it, right? If anybody tries to stop you, just say, the Lord needs it, right? That's just, it's, it's strange to me. Go into town, take this thing, and come on out. It really kind of feels like uh, Jesus is calling his disciples to go and commit Grand Theft Borough at this point. Bring them out and write it back. Of course, Jesus likely had already set up this prearrangements uh, with the family that owned the donkey and said, hey, my disciples will say the Lord. That'll be the code word, right? I mean, so he's probably got all that set up already. But his disciples, at least at this point, don't seem to know that. And it's just one of those many places where Jesus is asking his disciples to step out in faith and just just trust him. So they do. They go into town, and it happens just as Jesus said it probably would happen. They're probably, again, just envision this tree. They're, they're walking around the corner. They see the donkey, and they're kind of trying to hype each other up. One of you got to go get that donkey. And so they sneak over. They just start nonchalantly untying the donkey, and somebody says, hey, what are you doing there? And they use the password. Uh, the, Jesus needs it, right? And so they're like, oh, okay, take it. They take it back. They obey Jesus. Nobody gets thrown in prison at this point. So they move on. Uh, it's interesting. What is the deal with the donkey in the first place? Why, setting aside the fact that it's kind of silly how they have to go get this donkey and bring it back to Jesus, setting aside the fact, why on earth is Jesus asking them to go get a young donkey for him? What's the point? Well, see, Jesus, as he's getting ready to ride into Jerusalem, wants to make a statement about his identity. He wants to say, this is who he is. And he's going to use a donkey to do it, which sounds kind of weird to us at first. Until we recognize that there's prophecies about this thing, about a donkey and all of this. We heard it read just a second ago in the book of Zechariah about a donkey. So if you have your Bible, keep your finger in Luke. Let's go back to Zechariah for a second. Zechariah chapter 9. Just verse 9, that's the only one we'll read, which says this. 
Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble, mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. This, this prophecy is coming to Israel through Zechariah at a time where Israel was not able to have a king on a throne. They were being occupied by larger powers at this point in history. And in the middle of this text of, of promising Israel's deliverance from their enemies, God is saying a king will once again come to Jerusalem and reign. He will set up and establish his reign and rule over his people again. It won't always be like this where these foreign occupiers are in ruling over us. God is going to do something where he brings salvation through this king. Now, at this point in history, if you're looking for somebody to come in and remove a larger, greater army from occupying your hometown, what kind of ruler, king are you looking for? You're looking for somebody who's going to come riding in on what kind of steed? A war horse. You're not looking for somebody to come in on a donkey. You're looking for somebody to come in on a majestic, beefy, terrifying war horse. And yet, God says the kind of king that's going to come and bring deliverance to his people is not going to come in on the war horse. He's going to come in riding on a donkey. Which, it, it, it kind of put it in our terminology, we'd expect this king to come rolling in in a tank, and God says, no, nah, he's going to come rolling in on a beat-up old Ford Ranger. And so the kind of king that God's bringing in to set up his rule and reign is going to be a humble one, a lowly one. This is the kind of messianic king that will be coming. So when Jesus says, guys, I need you to go get me a donkey, he's saying, I am indeed this king Zechariah is talking about. But I am this king who is lowly, who is humble. I am a king that is coming to bring peace to God's people. Jesus is revealing himself to the people as the Messiah. All right, let's flip back to Luke 19 and continue. Uh, starting in verse 32 of chapter 19. So those who were sent away, went and found it just as he had told them. They were untying the colt. Its owners said to them, why are you untying the colt? They said, the Lord needs of it. And then they brought it to Jesus. And throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. And as he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began rejoicing and praising God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. So they bring the donkey back to Jesus and they make this kind of makeshift uh, saddle for him uh, out of their cloaks, throwing it onto the donkey and Jesus gets on and he starts running and they start uh, just laying their cloaks before him as he's going down the road to Jerusalem, giving him the royal treatment, right? And people are starting to clue in on this and, and realize this. And so his disciples and, and the crowds, they just start crying out, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Now this, this phrase that they're saying, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord is a phrase that comes from Psalm 118, 
around verse 26 or so. And it's, the, it's a phrase that as pilgrims would ride into Jerusalem, that people would shout to them and celebrate and say, hey, blessed is he who comes in. It's, it was a common phrase that they would use for people approaching the city on a pil- pilgrimage. And so it's very easy to see why they would be saying this to Jesus. However, it had an earlier use that the people were aware of as well. This same psalm would be used to celebrate the king returning and coming back to the city. And they would say, blessed is he who comes in the Lord, talking about the king returning to Jerusalem. And so when the crowd and Jesus' disciples are crying out and saying this before Jesus, it's, it's, they're getting the picture of who he is. They're saying, okay, you're riding on the donkey. We know what you're saying you are. And so they're saying, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. And people are celebrating, people are praising, people are rejoicing as Jesus rides in. They are celebrating this arrival. It seems pretty good, right, at this point in the story. It seems like things are going pretty well. But remember how we talked about there's been tension that's been building? Well, those characters that are producing that tension are going to show up right now. They do not like what they're hearing from the crowds And so look at the very next verse, verse 39. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, teacher, rebuke your disciples. And he answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. So these religious leaders, they tell Jesus what? Hey, do you hear what they're saying? Shut them up. They can't, they, they should not be saying this. There's two reasons why the disciple or the Pharisees are very concerned about what the crowds are saying. Reason number one, they're very sensitive to the kind of cultural dynamics at play in Jerusalem. The people are restless and they want a Messiah who's going to come and deliver them from the Romans, right? The Romans were the occupiers at this point. They're the ones in power, not the Jews. And so this, the Jews were always kind of just on the edge of rebellion. And so for Jesus, for a, a messianic figure to come in saying he's bringing deliverance and salvation, the people are going to interpret that as, hey, this guy's here to kick Rome in the face and deliver us. And so they're fearful that this kind of display is going to gather the attention of the Romans. And in typical Roman fashion, when they see kind of unrestlessness, guess what they do? They beat people down. And so they're kind of like, hey, we need to, we need to just ease off on what's going on here. So that's reason number one. They're like, Jesus, tell your disciples to shut up about this. Reason number two, they don't believe Jesus is the Messiah. They're not buying what Jesus is selling. They're saying, hey, no, 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 no. You, you can't walk in here claiming this. You are definitely not the Messiah. You need to silence them. And I love Jesus's response. It's very quick. He says, if you try to, sh- if you close these guys' mouths, it doesn't matter. The rocks are going to cry out with the truth of who I am. You see, all of creation, since the inception of the universe, everything has been longing and waiting for this moment when God's king, his Messiah, would come in to deliver God's people. And so even the rocks would be reverberating with the truth of who Jesus is. And Jesus says, it doesn't matter if you silence all my disciples. All of creation has been waiting for this. It will cry out. They will cry out with the truth of who I am. And so you can't help, I mean, if you're one of the disciples, you can't help 
but be encouraged by what you're seeing, right? Kind of, they've been looking forward to this. They still don't have the full picture. Jesus has told them he's going to die. He's told them he's going to raise from the dead, but they're very thick. And so they're like, well, things are feeling really good right now. So you can imagine they're pretty encouraged. And you would think Jesus would share that enthusiasm and encouragement. But as he rides into the city, he starts crying. Let's look at these next verses. Look at verse 45, or I'm sorry, uh, 41. And when Jesus drew near and saw the city, he wept over it. He wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. They will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. Jesus riding into the city, people are celebrating and rejoicing, and Jesus begins weeping. Weeping because he knows where this is headed. He knows how this is going to end. These same crowds that are rejoicing and saying, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, in a short amount of time are going to be shouting, crucify him. You see, Jesus is this king of peace riding into Jerusalem, the city of peace, and yet this city, by and large, will reject him as their king. They will reject him as the Messiah. They will reject his offer of salvation. They will kill him. And Jesus knows this. Jesus knows that this people is going to reject him. And so he weeps. He weeps. And he tells them, he lets them in. This is what's going to happen to this city for rejecting their Messiah, their king coming in to reign. What will happen? The city will fall. Jerusalem will be surrounded by armies. The enemies of the people, the Romans, will come in one day and slaughter them and destroy the city, and every stone in the temple will be thrown down. Why? Because they didn't know the time of their visitation. They didn't know that their king rode in on a donkey into their city. They reject him, and so judgment will come. They mistake his identity, and so judgment is sure. And this is exactly what happens. In 70 AD, Roman the Romans come in and destroy Jerusalem. Jesus knew beforehand that this would take place. That great tribulation would fall upon that city and judgment would fall upon them. And how does Jesus respond? He weeps. He weeps. They mistook his identity and rejected him as the Messiah. Well, there's a few takeaways I want us to wrestle with this morning as we consider this story, this account 
that we just have read together. The first thing I want us to wrestle with this morning, especially if you are a follower of Jesus, what is the right response to getting Jesus's identity right? What is the natural outcome of knowing who Jesus really is? Joy, right? Rejoicing. What do the people do as they accept initially Jesus is the Messiah? What is the right thing for them to do? To rejoice, to praise, to celebrate who he is. And church, what are we called to do? For those of us who have heard the gospel, received it, responded, and believe it, what is the right posture of our, our hearts towards all of life? It's one of rejoicing. It's one of joy, of celebration. Don't you understand? The Messiah has come for you and for me. And that should stir our hearts. That should, that should excite us. That should inflame our emotions and our passions. The Messiah, the King of peace has come to make peace with us and with God and to make peace between us. This is good news. This is wonderful. This is great. And yet so often we are just so grumpy and cranky and curmudgeon-y, curmudgeon-ly or curmudgeon-y, which one? I don't know. Don't fact check me on that. Both are right. But, but so often our hearts get so distracted. Jesus will receive the praise he's due, isn't he? Even if our mouths are shut, all these pews are going to start rattling, Right? The building's going to shake. That all of creation is infused with the truth of the reality of Jesus as king in the universe. And that should excite us. And that we should not be a people who are just meandering about, always defeated, always depressed and dejected. Yes, we face sorrow. Yes, we face challenges and difficulty. But the best news in the world is ours. Jesus is our king. So what else? What, I mean, what can people throw at us if Jesus is king? Like, like what, what are you dealing with in your life right now that has distracted you so much to the point you're like, man, it's over for me. It's not over. Who's sitting on the throne right now? Jesus is. He's your king. He's my king. He's ruling and reigning. And we must celebrate that, rejoice that. Church, I cannot tell you how excited I am for Easter. We're going to celebrate together. Jesus is alive. Every other world founder out there, every other religious founder, where are they right now? In the grave. Jesus is not. And so we celebrate that. We're excited about that. We must rejoice. We must declare. Church, you've got friends. You've got neighbors. You've got family members, loved ones, acquaintances, people at work that don't know this reality. Invite them. Have them come next week to hear about the good news of who Jesus is. That's part of who we are. I mean, don't we celebrate that which we love? For those of you that know me and hang out with me, do I ever talk about my favorite football team? Or no? I do. If you hang out with Carl, has he ever talked about soccer before with you? And if you hang out with Cassidy, thoughts and prayers. (laughs) 
We celebrate that which we love. And that's what God calls us to do. We've received this truth of who he is. We know his identity. And so he calls us to celebrate that and to share that with others. Easter is such an easy time to connect people with Jesus because people, for whatever reason, think, well, it's Easter. I probably should go to church, even though they like, why? Why do they think that? Who knows? But that's a great opportunity for us to introduce them to the king that we know so that he can be their king. And so church, I'm gonna encourage you, let's celebrate who Jesus is together. We're gonna sing in a little bit. This is a great time for you to sing your guts out because of what you've received as a follower of Jesus. Rather than kind of a, oh, I'm starting to already plan my my lunch plans and oh, I gotta start gardening or weeding when I get home or I gotta, let's focus on who he is as we worship together so that the rocks don't have to cry out in our place. Second uh, takeaway I want us to wrestle with this morning. We look at society, we look at the culture that we live in, and man, it's like we are spinning down a drain pretty quick, aren't we? And it's because of so many different ideologies and beliefs and values that are out there that are competing with what the Bible teaches is right and good and true and beautiful. And ultimately, the world is tanking, spinning down the drain because of an issue of mistaken identity. They don't believe that Jesus is this king who's come to rescue us from our sin. They don't believe these things. And yet, we know this, right? Don't we know this? Yet, what is our posture towards them? We view Honestly, we view people who believe differently, teach differently, different values, different politics, different social circles. We view them as the enemy. And we look down at them and we have a sense of superiority at times. I, I can be so smug towards somebody believing some stupid thing that they read on the internet. And so I'm like, well, you're an idiot. I'm so much smarter than you. And I know many of you have been there, right? Is that the right posture of a heart of a follower of Jesus towards those who have mistaken Jesus' identity? No. You know what we need to do, church? We need to weep. We need to grieve. We need to be filled with sorrow. Not indignation. Not rage. Yeah, the culture is going down the drain. But let's weep. Let's grieve. They're not our enemies. They just don't know the king yet. I think for some of us, I know I need to, I need to repent of that superiority complex I have towards those who believe differently and see things differently. And I believe I'm right in my beliefs. And I know as followers, we believe we're right. And we have good reasons for that. But that doesn't give us the right to look down on those who are different than us, who disagree with us in very significant ways. Let's weep for them. Let's extend love and grace and hospitality and kindness to those that are so 
often labeled our enemies because there is a judgment day coming. And all of us, our neighbors, our family members, ourselves, everyone will one day stand before God. And we will all acknowledge Christ as king at that point. But for those who rejected Jesus, who did not know the time of their visitation, how horrible it will be. Let's weep. Let's let our hearts be grieved by that church. And let that transform how we relate to those who are very different than us. Finally, friend, you might be sitting here this morning, and maybe this whole Jesus thing's new. You got roped into coming here because you can't make it for Easter, and so you promise mom you'll be here. Whatever your reason is, you're here today. God will hold you accountable for the truth of who Jesus is, and you need to make a decision on that. Maybe you've realized life has not been going well. It's because you've missed the best news on the planet, that God loves you and sent his son for you. He died on the cross for our sins and rose from the dead so that we could have peace with him and have a fullness of life now and in eternity. And so if you're here and you've never started a relationship with Jesus where you've acknowledged he is king over your life and you want to submit to him and know him and follow him, I want to encourage you to do that today. Don't allow another moment to go by where you don't get right on this identity. Stop mistaking his identity. If you want to know how to do that, you can talk with myself. You can talk with Pastor Carl, Pastor Cassidy. We'd love to share with you how you can start a relationship with this king today. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank you so much that you would send your son for us, that he would become low, that we might be lifted high, that we might be rescued from the judgment to come. God, help us to get the identity of your son right. And help us to live as though we believe that is true. God, I pray that you would help soften our hearts towards those who would disagree with us. Who, those who get Jesus wrong. God, help us to grieve. Help us to be filled with sorrow. To weep for those far from you that we might be better witnesses of King Jesus. And Father, for those in here that don't yet know you, those who are watching online that don't yet know you, God, don't let another day go by where they do not acknowledge Jesus as King. We love you and trust you. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.